All right. Now you guys know why we don't have an 8 o'clock service, because this is what it would be like if we showed up. Some of you guys are like, no, this is great. I love this. Some of you guys, I can tell you, your eyes are barely open right now, and you're thinking, what just happened in the middle of the night? Well, what happened was is you lost an hour of sleep in the middle of the night, and uh, yet here we are. Some of you guys, early risers, are this, this is great. You're already on your second cup of coffee. You're ready to go, and uh, we're ready to go, and we need to get into God's Word together. Last, this last week, uh, the pastors were down, and some of, the, some of you uh, men were down in Southern California, and we had a great time at uh, the Shepherds Conference down there, just getting uh, drinking out of a fire hose of truth uh, left and right, and singing with uh, 3,000 men uh, together was just a blessing, and uh, part of the joy of going down there for me is talking about you guys. Uh, because I have such a love for you guys. I just love to share what God is doing and, and the people in our church and just how uh, we have such humble servants in our church who just want to see the, the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed on, this, on the east side of, of Seattle and even into Seattle. And so it's always a joy for me to talk about you guys down there. And I was talking to somebody on Friday night. I, was, I just happened to be at In-N-Out Burger uh, talking to somebody. <laughs> Uh, there, and he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and I was talking to him. I was like, man, I just can't wait to get back for Sunday morning. I was getting pumped up right there over my double-double to get back with you guys and enjoy getting into God's Word, and I don't know if it's a double-double or what, but uh, it was, uh, it was uh, just something just to, to tell you guys how much I love you guys and enjoy being here on Sunday morning because I get refreshed on Sunday mornings, and hopefully you guys do too, so we do that because we open up our Bible and we, we hear from God. So that's what I want you to do. Take your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5. We've been talking about shepherding and shepherding the flock of God and that important role, the high priority, the highest priority of the shepherd is to feed the sheep and to shepherd the flock of God. And we've been talking about that in this section here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're moving now in the next couple of verses here in verses 5 and 6, let's talk about humility pride and humility. And so let me just read verses 1 to uh, 6, maybe even into 7 here, um, just to kind of give us a, here a little runway to work with as we uh, talk about pride and humility. It says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We all have things that we like, and we all have things that we don't like. We all have things we love and things that we don't love. Some of you love a, a nice hot day and a warm beach. Some of you love the mornings and a good cup of coffee and the quietness of the early day. Some of you love to travel, 
Some of you love to play sports. Some of you even love the rain. Some of you love the mountains. Some of you love New York. Some of you love San Francisco. Some of you love Texas. Some of you love Arizona. Some of you love Monday mornings. Some of you love Friday mornings. Some of you love Apple, and some of you love Microsoft. No fights going to break out? Okay, we're good. Some people hate the rain. Some people hate the heat. Some people hate the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Yankees. And for some reason that I don't understand, some people hate the San Francisco 49ers. We all have our loves and we all have our dislikes or we all have our hates. The question is this, have you ever wondered what God loves and what God hates? The passage we just read makes it very clear that God is for something and God is against something. God loves a certain person and God hates a certain person. To make it even more clear, Proverbs 8.13 says this, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. He says this, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. God says this in Proverbs 11, too, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Makes it even clearer in Proverbs 16, 5, where he says this, the Lord detests all proud of heart. What Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 5 is this, is that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is against those who are arrogant and prideful. God is opposed to them. This is exactly what's said, and what Peter's taking from is Proverbs 3, 34, which says exactly how it's read here, is God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And really, if you just read these two verses, it really doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. It's quite clear. God is against those who are prideful, and God is for those who are humble. There's a blessed truth here for those who walk in humility. And there's a sobering truth here for those who walk around pridefully. It tells us then what to do in verse 6. This is what we need to do. We need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he can lift you up. So that he can, in his time, exalt you. So Peter identifies here what it is that God is for and what God is against, what God loves and what God hates. He's for the humble. He's against the arrogant. He blesses the humble. He opposes the arrogant. In fact, he makes life miserable for the proud because he is totally against them. He is not for them. He desires nothing to do with them. It's interesting when it comes to pride and humility, they're uh, two, obviously, words that we're very familiar with. Pride is hard to evade, but easily identified in others. I don't see any pride in me, but I can certainly find it in somebody else. And humility is, well, once you've grasped humility, you've immediately lost it. It's like the guy who walked around the church with a pin connected to the chest of his suit coat that said, Voted most humble. But was he? But is he? Did he just lose it all? The kid who claimed, hey, my parents told me I'm the most humble person in the room. Well, your parents just set you up, kid. 
Once you claim humility, you've lost all humility. And Peter comes now to this section here and and, and takes us right to the heart of what the leader is to have, the heart of what a younger person is supposed to have, and the heart of, as it says there, all of you are to have, and that is to have a heart filled with humility towards God and towards one another. You could say this, that humility is the key that opens the door to effective, lasting relationships in the church and in the community. Without humility, we've lost the favor of God. Without humility, we've lost relationships. In fact, we're destroying relationships. We're ruining relationships. Without humility, we have no effectiveness for the kingdom of God because God's opposed to the proud. And this isn't a a one-off here, one-off section here where you can't find anything else in Scripture that talks about humility. And I would say this, that the entire uh, Bible is filled with those who are humble, that God uses only the humble. In fact, I want to show you this. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me to even see the ones that God saves and that God uses in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God always uses the humble, Let me say it this way, God only uses the humble. In fact, if you go through Scripture and you want to uh, go through Scripture through the lens of pride and humility, you will know this, that God uses the humble, uh, those who are weak in this world, to shame the strong. He, he uses the humble, those who are, are not as educated maybe as somebody else may be, those who are weak. God uses that person. You could trace that. You go to those who are strong and notice the strong. God humbles those people. The proud in Scripture are used as an illustration for the authority and wrath of God. And this humility, then, that's all throughout Scripture that Peter picks up on, he talks about it here in the context of leadership. He talks about it here in the context of persecution, in the context here of hardship. And humility, then, starts with the leadership. It starts with those 
leaders and elders who want to lay down their life for the sheep. It starts with those who want to lead in humility underneath the chief shepherd, recognizing that, that when the chief shepherd appears, there will be an accountability and an accounting for the way that they led. The elders are stewards of God's flock, humbly serving Jesus Christ and humbly serving and giving direction and devotion and duty to God first and to Jesus Christ, their chief shepherd, and then displaying that to the rest of the people. The example must be set first by the leadership. You can't expect the congregation to be humble if the leadership's not. Humility must be the heartbeat of the shepherds. There's no room for for arrogance. There's no room for pride. There's no room for self-seeking. There's no room for domineering. There's no room for pastors who are more into self than they are of the Savior. And so Peter, just after reminding them, you need to shepherd the flock of God, you need to exercise oversight, not under the compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. He then backs that up by saying, here's how you do that. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That's how you do it. That's how it's accomplished. You're focused on the glory of God and not the glory of self. And so in verse 5, he says this. Right after saying all these sayings about the role of the, the elders, he starts to make this transition. He starts with who? He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is that, that, one, that word there, you who are younger. Uh, it's a great translation there. The, it means simply that, the younger. <laughs> There's no age there, but hey, if you feel like you're younger, then, then you're in that category. Uh, we all feel like we're younger in some way, I suppose. Specifically here, probably drawing more attention to the younger men who have a tendency to want to move faster, Younger men who have a tendency to want to potentially even get ahead of their leaders, get ahead of their shepherds. Those who have even a wealth of knowledge, who have a deep desire and a passion, who want to blaze forward ahead of the leadership. For whatever reason, he calls out the younger men, potentially it could be because of their deep desire to want to move things faster than the leadership wants to move, or, or to think that they've got a better way than the experienced leadership has, and, and to get ahead of them and not be subject to them, and, and, and fall in line underneath them. It's not to say that the younger have nothing to contribute to the church. In fact, that would be the opposite of what it's saying. The younger have much to contribute to the church. They have much passion, much desire, much knowledge. They offer that to the truth by first saying this, I'm going to be subject to those who are over me. I'm going to follow their lead and their leadership. Even if I think there's a better way, even if I think we're not moving in the right direction, Scripture says this, you who are younger, who have those passions and desires and have a tendency to want to, want to get ahead and to, and to lead and get in front of everybody, your role right now is to grow in wisdom and strength and stature and understanding by following those who God has put in front of you. Be a supporting cast member. Allow time and experience to catch up to desire and drive. 
So he says this, be subject. It's an aorist tense, imperative mood. It's a command to fall in line under God's appointed leadership. He's saying this, do it now, don't procrastinate. Fall in line. The word here, subject, it's been used before in this passage, in this this chapter. In fact, Peter uses it a number of times. It's a military term. That meant that you would fall underneath your commanding officer. You'd be subject to those who God put over you. It's a military word. Voluntary attitude, cooperation, assuming responsibility. And Peter uses this, if you would, just draw your attention back to chapter 2. In fact, uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, he, he talks about submission to authority all the way through chapter 2. And you guys were with us, many of you were with us as we studied chapter 2. And even then, into chapter 3, all the way down to verse 7, this whole section is talking about submission. Why? Because, listen, submission is an identifying mark of a true believer. Submission is an identifying mark of a true believer. We are all under the submission of who? Of God. And then God puts leaders in front of you to fall underneath. And he talks about submission to to the government. He talks about being, in verse 11, subject to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but to the unjust. Chapter 2, verse 18. He talks about being subject to even, even those who accuse you. Those who mistreat you. He talks about in chapter 3 and verse 1, those who are subject to their wives, who are subject to their own, own husbands, even to those who are not believers. And so he's talking about what? He's talking about humility. Being able to follow someone else. Being able to be led. As I said, this is the identifying mark of a true believer because believers, listen, are first humbled by God. True believers desperately see this, that they can't do it and that they need a Savior. In fact, Psalm 34, 18 says this, that God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Meaning this, only those who humble themselves and see their sin for what it is, they recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. They recognize that they are in desperate need of a Savior, that they can't do it on their own. Prideful people don't think that way. Humble people see their need of a Savior, and so they line themselves up underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. They say, God, I can't do it. God, I'm not righteous enough. God, I can't keep doing these things. God, I need you. They believe in the perfect righteousness of Christ. They're crushed in their spirit because they can't do enough to win the favor of God. And so they fall before him and they humble themselves underneath the mighty hand of God. And so that's what he says there as he makes this transition here into humility. He says to the younger, he says, hey, be subject to your leaders. Be subject to your elders. But then notice what he says right away after saying that. Look at, look at what it says then and right after that. Verse 5, and then he says what? Clothe yourselves, and then underline this. Everybody take your pen out. 
your highlighter. Underline this. All of you. All of you. Clothe yourselves. All of you. This includes the leadership. This includes the younger. And this includes the entire congregation. All of us are to humble ourselves. Look what it says. With humility, what? Toward one another. In humility towards one another. And he says, why? Why are we to be in humility towards one another? Because God is opposed to the proud. Because God gives grace to the humble. Relationships depend on humility. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others. And so the call here and the command here is to pursue humility. Clothe yourself in it. Wrap your life in humility. This should be the regular practice of the church. Daily submitting ourselves to the Lord. We should be known for our humility. We say it this way, pride destroys relationships. Pride destroys the church. This is why Peter would go here as he comes to the ninth inning here of his, of his letter. He goes right to this prized virtue, this necessary virtue. We must all be humble towards one another. If you're going to last in a persecuted world that hates you, if you're going to last in a world where people are coming at you, you've got a target on your back, you need to go to a place where there are humble people. And so where do you go? You go to the church. And this is, this is Peter's desire. In the midst of being persecuted, you would have those around you who have humbled themselves and desire to be in relationship with one another, encouraging one another, not looking down upon one another. And he also knows this, that God's favor is only upon those who are, who are humble. The eye of God is not on those who are arrogant. Because God hates pride. In fact, in Proverbs 16.15, well, I already, already said that to you guys, in Proverbs 16.15, you won't find stronger language for sin in Scripture. He hates it. He doesn't just kind of put up with it. He hates it. So let me just talk about this. We'll talk about pride this week, and then when we come back, we'll talk about humility next time. Let's just answer this question. Well, what is pride? Like I said, it's easy to find in somebody else. It's easy to say, oh, well, pride is, we have our list of things. It's certainly not in me, but I can certainly see it in somebody else. There's six Hebrew, six different Hebrew words for pride in the Old Testament, and all of them convey this. Write this down. They convey this, lifting up, highness, magnification, presumptuousness, or rebelliousness. One word even means this, the straining of a neck. So it's kind of like this idea of straining, looking up and over and down upon somebody else. Holding it high up loftiness, puffed up, high-mindedness. My godliness surpasses everybody else's godliness, and I look 
down the end of my nose at everybody else. One Greek word in the New Testament, maybe this is helpful to us, one of the Greek words in the New Testament for pride has to do with blindness. Blindness. We can't see it in ourselves all the time. Why? Because that's what pride does. It, it blinds us to our own sin. Oftentimes we say this, can't those people see how arrogant they are? Can't they see? Can't they hear the words that are coming out of their mouths? Well, no, they can't. They're blind to it. Sometimes somebody will say something, and we, we kind of twist our head like a dog, and our eyebrows go in and go, wait, did you just hear what you said? No, they didn't. They actually didn't. Because that's what pride does. It, it blinds us. Jonathan Edwards says this about pride. He says this, it is the worst viper that is in the heart. He says this, it is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Thomas Watson says this, pride seeks to un-God God. Pride seeks to un-God God where you just say, hey God, <laughs> I'll take it from here, thanks. I, I got this. I don't need you. I, I can do this myself. Stuart Scott says this, he says, prideful people believe that they are or should be the source of what is good, right, and worthy of praise. They also believe that by themselves are or should be the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to accomplish. In essence, they are believing that all things should be from them, through them, and to them, or for them. Pride is competitive towards others and especially towards God. Pride wants to be on top. Proud people are those who, are, who can't be thankful. Prideful people are those who can't be happy for others. Proud people are critical, gossips. They need attention and recognition. They always feel like they're getting the raw deal. Sometimes we just think of prideful people are those who are the ones who stand out and those, those who... Uh, um, you know, are the ones who, who walk around with this kind of alpha mentality. Those are, those are just the, the arrogant people. I think we make a big mistake there. Stuart Scott's helpful with this because he, he talks about the other side of the coin, and that is those who have self-pity. He says this about it. He says, but what about those who are caught up in self-pity, who are self-absorbed with a sense of failure? This, too, is pride. They're just the flip side of a coin, of the pride coin. People who are consumed with self-pity are focusing on their own selves too much. They are not concerned with the glory of God and with being thankful for what good gifts and talents the Lord has given them, but instead are focused on how they think they have gotten a raw deal or how they are not as good as someone else. 
self-pitying people desperately want to be good, not for the glory of God, but for themselves. They want to do things for and by their own power and might and for personal recognition. They want everyone to serve them, like them, and approve of them. When these desires are not fulfilled, a prideful person will become even more inwardly focused and will continue a vicious cycle. The self-focused person who bemoans the fact that he or she is not what they desperately want to be, elevated in esteem, should not be deceived by thinking they are, they are not proud. Nothing could be further from the truth. To sum it all up, proud people believe that life is all about them and their happiness and their accomplishments and their self-worth. It's everywhere. It's kind of like we got this like me monster within us. It's got to be about me, me, me. It's all about me. And when it's not about me, it needs to be about me and I got to make it more about me. That's for the confident, and that's for the ones who are living in self-pity. It's this, the same, the same uh, coin here called pride, and it's everywhere. And it's no wonder, then, that God would be opposed to the proud. They're trying to rob the glory of God, trying to take the glory of God for themselves so that, that other people would look at them. And, and, and God says this, that I, that I oppose those people, but I will give so much grace to those who are humble. Those who want to honor God, those who want to lift God up. This is who God gives grace to. What is humility? Let me just give you a short definition here. To, according to Vine, he's got an incredible dictionary. Remember dictionaries? You guys remember those? Yeah. It says this. The Greek word for humility is this. It ind indicates not, a, not merely a moral quality, but the subjection of self under the authority of and in response to the love of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to confirm the believer, to conform the believer to the character of Christ. Humility is this, living in subjection to the authority of Christ in your life. That's where it starts, and we'll talk about it next week, what it actually means to clothe yourself in humility. Humble people don't need to elevate themselves. They don't need to insert themselves. They don't need to be noticed. They don't need to be accepted. They don't need to be praised. Their, their identity and security is only in Jesus Christ. Their satisfaction is in Him alone. The humble elevate God. They accept his authority. They accept his sovereignty. They acknowledge this, that he is ultimately in control of my life and my situation. And so humbleness starts with the right view of who God is and my own unworthiness. We recognize this, that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Let me point you to an illustration here. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, it's the story of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a, a couple of dreams. 
They can't find anybody to interpret them for them. Interpret, there's one, one in particular here in, in chapter 4. So he calls on Daniel. Daniel comes in and interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him, look, this, this actually isn't going to go well for you. In fact, what's going to happen is that God's going to humble you. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe him, doesn't, doesn't want to hear that. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, down in verse 27 and verse 28, verse 27, Daniel says to him, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps be the lengthening of your prosperity. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. So here's this picture of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's on his palace, kind of off this veranda, looking out over the city. And the king answered and said, is this not the great Babylon? which I have built for my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of what? My majesty. This is all about me. Look around. Daniel, go ahead, look for yourself. I'm a pretty wonderful guy. I'm the king of this entire city. What you said in your dream is not going to happen. The way way you interpret it is not going to happen. I mean, look around. I'm pretty special. All of this is for my majesty. Look at this. While the words, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king of heaven, has spoken to you. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from away from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields. You shall be made to eat like grass and ox, and the seven periods of time shall pass over you. Why? Why? Why did this happen? Look what it says. Until... You know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will until you recognize, Nebuchadnezzar, that God is the Most High God and you are not. That's what a humble person is. They recognize that God is the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn this lesson. Immediately, verse 33, the word was filled with Nebuchadnezzar. It, was, it all happened. He was driven away among the men. His body went wet in the dew of heaven, and his hair grew long as the eagle's feathers and nails were like bird's claw. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And what did I do? I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generations, and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Look what it says, verse 35, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay with his hand or say to him, what have you done? That time the reason returned to me, for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, and my counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in the kingdom, and more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, look it says, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
What's the first step then to humility? The first step to humility is this. Recognize who God is. That he is God and we are mere man. That he is the potter and we are the clay. And that he gets to decide and to do whatever he wants. And we line up under that. And we're just happy to be used by God in any way we can. To be used for the kingdom of God. To recognize who has the authority in my life. It's God. May we say what it says in Psalm 115.1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. Let me tell you this. Let me just close with this this morning. There is so much, there is so much grace and forgiveness for those who would confess their pride. Can I tell you this? Jesus Christ came to save prideful people like you and me. That's why he came. He came so that we would confess that sometimes we want to play God. That sometimes we want to be in control. We want things to go our way. And we want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Christ came and died on the cross so that you would seek forgiveness of that and that you would live in humility. There is so much hope for us. As we feel and recognize, as we fall under the weight of Scripture right now, I want to tell you and give you hope that Jesus Christ came for you and died for you so that you would confess your sin before Him so that it would be true what is said in 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. That's why Jesus came. We can't do this apart from Christ. We can't just wake up every day and say, today I'm going to be humble. Watch how humble I am today. It doesn't work that way. We have to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, recognizing that he's in sovereign control, and I'm just simply living for him today. And we're all in this together. No, nobody's here saying, oh, I don't struggle with this. I don't Some of us struggle with different kinds of sin, but, but we're all in the same boat when it comes to this. And we all fall down before Jesus Christ every day and we thank him for his perfect righteousness. And we live in light of the gospel today. We show, we show people the, the humility of Christ displayed in us. And so what we all are to do is just fall before the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, that there is hope for me, a sinner. And the question is not for us this, this morning, am I a prideful person? The question for us is this, where is the pride? Where is it? Because I want to flesh that out, Lord. Where is it? Reveal it to me. I want to flesh that out. I want to come before you and confess it. I want to come before you and repent of it. I want to be on your side. Reveal that to me because I have hope in Jesus Christ to forgive me of that sin.
And so where does this leave us? It leaves us back at the cross. It leaves us back at Christ. And we run to Him so that we can clothe ourselves with humility, so we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 7 tells us how to do that. We cast all our anxieties on Him. Because what? He cares for us. We have a great opportunity to do that here in communion. And let me just pray for us. And guys can come back up. Johnny can come up. And let me just pray for us. This is a perfect opportunity reminded of the cross and the forgiveness that there is in Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so thankful. We, we truly are. Even, even when, when the messages are, are hard to swallow some, we're, we, we, we're, we're thankful. We need to hear hard truths. We need to hear grace. We need to hear the truth of, that you hate pride and you love humility. We need to hear that there's forgiveness at the cross. There's hope for all of us. Reminded that the, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so, Lord, before you crush us with an event or an episode in our life that, like Nebuchadnezzar, to humble us, may we recognize and may you reveal to us the pride in our hearts now so that we can confess that. Lord, be gracious to us in that way. To show us where it is that we need to come before you and fall before you and confess our, our pride, our dependence on self. And Lord, we know this, that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us. You are ready, you are eager to forgive us. You even say to cast all those cares upon you. Release them all at the cross where we find grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to walk in humility each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.